The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. You saw that Adrian made us this, right? And this was, uh, what, about two months ago or three months ago? And he, uh, this is a personal one. He put my initials on the back. And I liked it so much, and I have a Bible that I've used for quite a while, and it looks almost new on the inside, but the outside's just falling apart. And so I sent it to him. I said, would you do this as well? And so he was willing to do that, and he sent it back to me, and it is so marvelous what he did. I'll show the people online, too. Let me make sure. It says, Holy Bible, and it's got the name of Jesus right here. And then what he did is he used Hebrew characters when he could. This is actually a Samek in the Hebrew. This is an Ayin, but it looks like holy. And then down here, it's got a Tzadi, and it's got, uh, yeah, okay, so there you go, Bible. And then on the back, it says superior word. It's got a Tav, a Kuf, a Tzadi, a Tzamek, a Shin, and a Samek. All of those are Hebrew letters, and yet it looks like superior word. So it's beautiful what he did. And so he did this, and this thing will last forever. So what I decided, this is the Thursday night Bible class Bible. When we are doing the class, because it's bigger and I can see and I don't have to thumb around so much. And uh, uh, the only way you're going to see this in use is if you show up for Thursday night Bible class. Okay, So hint, hint. Um, uh, yeah, he did everything. He put bindings on the back, and what he did is he took like cords. So he took the old cover off and then re-bound. Yes, he did. It's marvelous what he did. So anyway, I just wanted to thank him again openly for that because it's it's marvelous work he did. Marvelous. Okay, we're going to get started with Psalm 131 first. <clears throat> Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. We are in Deuteronomy 7. We're in a new chapter here, moving right along. 7, 1 through 8 today. This is entitled, Because the Lord Loves You. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, 
from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The day I typed this sermon started out, as always, with my morning Bible reading. A part of what I read was Deuteronomy 28, and that passage is the woeful reminder to Israel of what got them into the pickle they were in when exiled to Babylon, and that what got them into the pickle they have been in for the past 2,000 years. Their troubles have been a self-inflicted wound. Until they realize this, there will be no change for them. They project outward at the world over every infraction against them, and indeed, many are unjustified. But none of the ills they face would come to pass if they had been obedient to the covenant that they agreed to. As I will point out today and continue to point out again and again, the covenant anticipates its own ending and the introduction of a new covenant. In rejecting Christ, they were disobedient to the Mosaic Covenant, and they are outside of the New Covenant. Such is the state that they have been in and that they will continue to be in until the day they, as a nation, call out to him. But even in life under the Old Covenant, as is recorded in the Bible, God has used the misdeeds of Israel to bring glory to himself. An example of this will be explained later when we hear about Rahab the harlot. Something occurred in the account concerning her, which is in violation of the word given by Moses today. That is a bad thing. However, the result of that bad thing has led to good things. Even Israel under the law could figure that out from their writings. And so they could perversely say, we brought glory to God through our misdeed. Therefore, what we do as a people, right or wrong, is an instrument to bring glory to the Lord. Sounds unreasonable, doesn't it? Our text verse comes from Romans chapter 3. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Unfortunately, this is the attitude of many in Israel, and that attitude continues in the church today. Is it evil to violate scripture? Are Paul's words scripture? When Paul says concerning theological matters that a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man, is that prescriptive or is it descriptive? Is it optional or is it mandatory? But many females have become pastors. Some have great insights, lead people to Christ, and run what would otherwise be considered important ministries. And yet, It is exactly what Paul argues against in our text verse. Let us do evil that good may come. The end cannot justify the means, and God cannot reward open disobedience to his word. We will learn about that today. We will also learn a lot more. So buckle your seat, put on your helmet. There's a lot to learn, and it will come at you quickly. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so, Let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Do you know why I say that every week, the same thing? One, it's true, but two, it's because of a guy named D. James Kennedy. Some of you may remember him, had a ministry over on the East Coast, and he he would always start his sermons, which were really cheesy. They were about 10 minutes long, and they usually dealt with Benjamin Franklin or something, but he would always say, "Let's, let's look into God's word today. So that's why I say that. Our first thought today, make no covenant with them. It's verses 1 through 5. Moses had given a brief review of some of Israel's history in chapters 1 through 3, highlighting events from leaving Sinai until the spot where they now sat, 
across the Jordan from Canaan. In chapter 4, there was a bit more review, but the chapter focused on idolatry and being sure to obey the commands of the Lord, forsaking any such idolatry. At the end of that chapter, the defeat of Sihon and Og was again repeated, even though it had been reviewed in chapters 2 and 3. They and their people were exterminated, and that was the expectation west of the Jordan as well. Chapter 5 again commanded obedience as the Ten Commandments were repeated. They also warned against idolatry as well as the other major points of the law, focusing on love for the Lord and love for one's neighbor. Chapter 6 continued to stress love for the Lord and holding fast to Him in obedience. At the end of chapter 6, Moses explained that the meaning of all of these testimonies, statutes, and judgments was based on the Lord having delivered Israel from Egypt, from the house of bondage. It was a land of idolatry and bondage, but they were brought out from that in order that he might bring them into their own land. One can see that chapter 6 expanded upon the first command. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Understanding this progression of thought, Moses now opens chapter 7 saying, verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess. The purpose of bringing them out is so that he might bring them in. They were held in a land they did not possess. They were being given a land of their own to possess. In this, there were certain obligations that needed to be performed to keep them from violating the very commands that have been so heavily stressed. One of those commands was to dispossess the inhabitants of Canaan. Moses says that it will be the same Lord who brought them out who will now accomplish that task. Verse 1 going on, and has cast out many nations before you. Here, Moses uses a rather rare word, nashal, meaning to slip off or draw off or even to clear away. It has only been used so far in Exodus 3 verse 5. Do not draw near this place. Take off that word. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moses promises that the Lord will be the one to draw the people off the land, just as a person draws off his shoe. Those who will be ejected are, verse 1 continues, the Hittites. Hachiti, the Hittite. It should be noted now that all seven of the named people groups are in the singular, not the plural. Hittite means terrible or fearsome. They were introduced into the Bible in Genesis 15. They're referred to throughout all of the Old Testament writings, and the name will be last seen in Ezekiel 16.45 when speaking of Jerusalem. You are your mother's daughter, loathing husband and children, and you are the sister of your sisters who loathe their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite, that word, and your father was an Amorite. Verse 1 continues, And the Girgashites, Veha Girgashi, and the Girgashite. The exact meaning of the name is unknown. It may mean dweller in a clayey soil. They are sparsely noted between Genesis 10:16 and Nehemiah 9, verse 8. Verse 1 continues, and the Amorites, Veha Emuri, and the Amorite. The name means spoken of and thus renowned. They are noted many times throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis 10, verse 16, until Amos 2, verse 10. They are, at times, used as a catch-all name to describe the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. The same is true with verse 1 going on, and the Canaanites, Veha Kena'ani, and the Canaanite. The name Canaanite may mean merchant or servant. The latter is more likely. They were cursed by Noah as the lowest of slaves, and they also picture those who bring others into slavery. 
Canaan was the firstborn of Ham, and his name identifies with the land and people groups in the land. The name is mentioned throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, beginning in Genesis 9, verse 18, and last seen in Acts 13, verse 19. Verse 1 continues, And the Perizzites, Veha Peritzi, and the Perizzite. The name means villagers or dwellers in the open country. They are seen mostly in the books of Moses and in the writings of the Old Testament from Genesis 13:7 until Nehemiah 9, verse 8. Verse 1 continues, And the Hivites, Veha Chivi and the Hivite. Hivite means tent villagers. They are also seen in the books of Moses and the writings from Genesis 10 verse 17 all the way until 2 Chronicles 8 verse 7. Verse 1 continues, and the Jebusites, Veha Yebusi, and the Jebusite. The name means treading down or trodden underfoot. They are found mostly in Moses and the writings, but Zechariah mentions them also, going from Genesis 10 16 until Zechariah 9 verse 7. It was the Jebusites who held the main body of Jerusalem until the time of King David. Of these people groups, Moses says they are, verse 1 continues, seven nations greater and mightier than you. It should be noted that ten people groups were mentioned as possessing the land in Genesis 15, 18 through 20. That was when the Lord promised the land to Abraham. At times, even in Deuteronomy, the names of the people groups will vary from this list now. For example, Deuteronomy 20 will say the following, But of the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. There, only six groups are named. The Girgashites is left out. Therefore, the list is to be taken as a general list speaking of all of the inhabitants, even if not all are named at all times. The words of Moses, seven nations greater and mightier than you, are certainly intended to mean that each, each nation by itself is mightier and greater. Despite this, Moses continues, verse 2, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you. Here, it is clearly stated by Moses that the Lord will, in fact, deliver the inhabitants to them. This is an important statement because the Lord's deliverance of the peoples precedes the destruction of them. Because the Lord is God, this cannot be considered either indiscriminate or unsanctioned killing. And more, because he will deliver them, there is no excuse for any to survive. This is especially so concerning the next words. The Lord will deliver them, and they must then take action. Verse 2 going on, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. And you shall strike them, and accursing them, you shall make them accursed. The word is haram, and it signifies to devote to destruction as an offering to God. When haram is pronounced, whatever the Lord included as haram was to be utterly destroyed. For example, Jericho was to be completely destroyed. All the people, all the possessions, all the animals, everything. The only thing to be spared is noted in Joshua 6 saying, but all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. At times, the animals might be spared, or maybe the people were to be killed, but the city could be inhabited. It was the Lord's decision, and whatever level of haram was determined, it had to be accomplished to the last thread or stone. 
In case of the inhabitants of Canaan, all were to be completely exterminated. None were to survive. As it next says, verse 2 going on, you shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. The command is given, and thus it is a point of law. The words say, you shall not cut with them a covenant. The idea surely extends to treaties or making alliances. And the reason is obvious. They were to be exterminated in order to prevent taking up their idolatrous practices. Thus, making a covenant with them would preclude this. In having a covenant with them, the land would not be a solely Israelite possession. There would be the constant warring over whose land it was, what rights did the inhabitants have, and so on. Israel was to move in, dispossess the inhabitants, and thus be the sole possessors of the land, unhindered by the idolatry which would be sure to arise without these mandates being fulfilled. One would think that not cutting a covenant would extend to swearing an oath of protection for someone who sides with Israel. Wouldn't you think that? The Lord said to destroy all, and there is no caveat presented to make exceptions. As this is so, it would be logical to assume that the Shavuah, or oath, sworn to Rahab the harlot to spare her and her family would fall under this. Either way, it is absolutely certain it extends to the treaty that Joshua made with the Gibeonites. They were a clan under the Hivites, mentioned in verse 1, who came in through deception. Joshua, without checking with the Lord, made peace with them and cut a covenant with them. It is the same words as are used in this verse right now. Thus, the law was violated in their actions. Despite this, we see later that Rahab came into the line of David and thus into the line of Jesus Christ. The Gibeonites are seen still among the Israelites even after the exile in the book of Nehemiah helping to repair the wall and the governor's residence in Jerusalem. The failings of Israel are still used for good purposes by the Lord, demonstrating that his plan includes even the countless failings of his people. As we sit here today, guess what? That includes every one of us. We fail, and yet the Lord works out a good end despite it. It is a marvelous lesson that we can learn and that we can cling to, knowing that he has it all figured out, even if we grieve over our own faithlessness or our own incompetence. Verse 3, nor shall you make marriages with them. Of the previous verse, concerning utterly destroying the inhabitants, Joseph Benson and others says, that is, in case they continued obstinate in their idolatry, they were to be destroyed as nations or bodies politic. But... If they forsook their idolatry and became sincere proselytes to the true religion, they would then be proper objects of forgiveness as being true penitents. Now, of this verse concerning marriage, Joseph Benson says, From this prohibition, it has been justly inferred that the Canaanites, as individuals, might be spared upon their repentance and reformation from idolatry. For on the supposition that nothing that breathed was to be saved alive, but that all were to be utterly destroyed, there could be no occasion for this injunction. What end could it answer to forbid all intermarriages with a people supposed not to exist? It is hard to understand how scholars can insert into the text something which is not to be found there. Moses says, utterly destroy, not utterly destroy unless no exceptions were to be made. The answer to Benson's question is, the people were set for destruction, and yet Israel failed to carry through with the command. Thus, intermarriages were forbidden, even if those people still existed. 
This is perfectly evident from examples such as Solomon, even more than four centuries later. Here's what it says in 1 Kings 11. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. The failure to be obedient to one command allowed for Solomon's failure to be obedient to another one. Hittites are under the ban now mentioned in this passage. The Bible, whether in the Old or in the New Testament, is not a book, everybody get this right, of personal exceptions when convenient. It is the Word of God, and it is to be accepted as such. The context is to be maintained, and when the context commands or forbids something in that context, it is to be adhered to. Verse 3 continues, You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. The pronouns are singular, to his son, nor take his daughter. This is speaking of the inhabitant, whoever he may be. Again, John Gill qualifies the words of verse 3, saying, unless they become proselytes. There's no qualifier given by the Lord or by Moses. The point of the later exceptions is not to say that such exceptions are a-okay. It is to show that the Lord can still work through Israel's disobedience for a good end. This does not mean that we should think it is acceptable to marry a Muslim or a Buddhist, for example, knowing that God can use our disobedience for a good end. The New Testament shows that believers are to marry believers. Anything else other than that is disobedience. And yet, I personally know Christians who have disobeyed this precept, and good has come out of it in the conversion of the spouse. The end, however, does not justify the means. There will be a loss of reward for the disobedience, and guess what? There will also be joy in heaven despite it. This precept is what Paul spoke against in our text verse today. Let us do evil that good may come, such as actually perverse thinking. The marvel of God, however, is that he can turn our perverse ways into a marvelous part of the beautiful tapestry he is weaving in the unfolding plan of redemption. For now, Moses explains his words and in a rather exceptional way. Verse 4, for they will turn your sons away from following me. Again, this needs correction. It says, for he, singular, will turn away your son, singular, from following me. It is speaking of the foreigner, whoever he may be. However, the interesting part of the verse is that it is Moses who is speaking. And yet he says, from following me. The two possibilities are that one, he is referring to the body of law coming from him, also known as the law of Moses. Or two, he says me as if the Lord is speaking in order to ensure that the words he will turn is not speaking of the Lord, but of the foreigner. The second option is certainly what is being conveyed. Moses, speaking under inspiration, has transferred his words to be as if those spoken directly by the Lord in order to ensure clarity. It is in not following after the Lord that they will turn, verse 4 continues, to serve other gods. This is the whole point of the passage so far. And as we saw, this passage continues in thought from the previous chapter, and that passage continues in thought from chapter 5, where it said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Intermarriage will result in turning away from the Lord. Turning away from the Lord will result in turning to serve other gods. Remember what we read about Solomon in the previous verse. 
What was the result of what he did? The very next verses tell us from 1 Kings 11 again. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. The same chapter directly credits Solomon's faithlessness in this to the division of the nation of Israel. And yet, the Lord used both the division of Israel and one of Solomon's marriages to continue marvelous events in the redemptive narrative. One of the wives, an Ammonite, became the mother of Rehoboam and thus entered into the genealogy of Jesus Christ as is noted in Matthew 1 verse 7. But just because good comes out of such things, it does not mean that the Lord is pleased with our disobedience. As Moses says, verse 4 continues, So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Again, the ends do not justify the means. The Lord brought good out of many instances of Israel's disobedience. In fact, the Redeemer of man came through some of them, but that is because of the Lord's overarching sovereignty. But our negative decisions will negatively affect ourselves and those around us. God does not impose his will on us, be it in who we marry or whether we choose Christ for salvation or not. Those are personal, free will choices. When those choices are against the stated will of the Lord, that disobedience against the Lord will be judged. In the case of this verse, the you is plural. He is speaking to the people. You all will be destroyed. The very thing that they were to do to the peoples in Canaan will come upon them. To avoid this, Moses continues, verse 5, But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. Moses now turns from the people to what the people will worship. And yet they are united as one thought. The people are intimately connected to that which they worship. And so each was to be destroyed according to what it is. The altars were to be torn down. The matzevah, or pillars, were to be broken in pieces. The asherim, or wooden images, were to be gada, or cut down. Here Moses introduces this word into scripture. It means to cut off or to cut down. And finally, the pasil, or carved images, another new word in scripture, coming from a verb meaning to cut, in other words, you're cutting out an image, were to be burned in the fire. In the Hebrew, a special emphasis is placed on burning these carved images by the addition of a suffix on the word. As for the thought of these words, similar words have already been put forth by the Lord. Exodus 23, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. But the Lord spoke even more precisely in Exodus 34, where he ties all of these things together as Moses now repeats here. Here's what he said. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods and one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice and you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. The people are tied to their altars 
And a covenant with the people means that a covenant has been made with their false deities. The resulting chaos and turning from the Lord is thus inevitable. The jealousy of the Lord will be aroused, and in the arousal of his jealousy will come forth his anger. Moses next explains why these things were to be so. Be obedient to what I say, even if not doing so will turn out for good. It is not right for you to ever disobey. Be sure that this is perfectly understood. If my word is violated and good comes from that, it is because I ordained that it would be this way. But your disobedience only makes you a brat. Even if good comes from it, you have no right to disobey. Turn from disobedience and always do right. Do not use the excuse that things will turn out okay. That is wickedness in my sight. There is never a time when it is right to disobey. Our second thought today is a special treasure. Verses 6 through 8. Verse 6, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Ki am kadosh ata le Yehovah Elohecha. For people holy you to Yehovah your God. The words of this verse, with differences, comes in thought from the words of the Lord in Exodus 19. Here's what he says there. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. There, the Lord made the words conditional. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be. Here, Moses simply says, you are. There, the Lord says, a holy nation. Here, Moses says, a holy people. The words beg for us to consider them. The Lord says, if, then, in order to be a holy nation. Moses says, you are a holy people. What is obvious is that a people can be holy, meaning set apart to God, and yet not be a holy nation, meaning a nation which is set apart to God. Israel is set apart as holy, whether they like it or not. But Israel can be unholy even in their being set apart. The resolution to the two states is obeying the Lord's words and keeping his covenant. In understanding this, it resolves one of the greatest misunderstandings concerning Israel in the world today. Israel misunderstands it. The church, in large part, misunderstands it. And the world at large misunderstands it. Israel is, is a holy people, regardless as to how they act. The Lord has set them apart. He has put his name on them, Israel. He strives with God, Israel. And he has covenanted with them. That has not changed nor will it change. Israel as a nation thinks it's holy, meaning right with God, because they are Israel the people. This is incorrect. As a nation, they are right with God when they are obedient to the Lord. As a people, they are obedient to the Lord in order to be a holy nation. If I adopt a child, we could say he is set apart. He is holy to the family. He is to act as a member of the family in order to be right, meaning holy to the family. If he doesn't act in accord with the rules of the family, it does not mean that he isn't a child of, meaning holy to the family. It means that he is an unholy child. This is where Israel fails to understand their obligations. It is also where the church fails to understand Israel. The church says Israel is no longer a holy nation. They have disobeyed the Lord, and thus they are not also now the Lord's people. The theological categories are thus mixed. That is entirely incorrect. 
Israel is a holy, meaning a set-apart people to the Lord forever, but they are not a holy nation to the Lord. Does everybody see the difference? Israel is a people, and they are holy, but they are a nation right now in the world, and they are not holy. You've all got that. Okay. The latter does not negate the status of the former. It simply means they, as a holy people, are not a holy nation. Israel looks at themselves as a holy people, and thus they are a holy nation. Many in the church look at Israel as an unholy nation, and thus they are an unholy, meaning not the Lord's people. Both of these are incorrect, and both require correction. They are category mistakes. The world at large, meaning the nations who reject the God of Israel from either testament, looks at Israel as an unholy nation and an unholy people. To them, they are not set apart by God as a people because their God is not the true God. And they are even disobedient to the word of their God, which they claim gives them holiness. Thus, the nations view them as double unholy. Each of these, and you can see there's overlap between the views, be it positive or negative, is an error in thinking. The nations in general are in error because they reject the God of the Bible. People in the church in general are in error because they fail to understand the unconditional decrees of God. And Israel, the nation, is in error because as a people, they fail to conduct themselves in the manner which is in accord with who they are as a set-apart people by God, meaning to himself. Moses continues to show this saying. Verse 6 continues, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. The words here and in the next clause are rendered in various ways. We will put two side by side so you can see this. First from the New King James Version, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. From the ESV, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. The New King James Version gives two separate designations, a people for himself which is then qualified by a special treasure above all peoples. The ESV gives one, saying a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples. The words read, Liot lo leam segula mikol ha'amim. Two for him, two people treasure from all the peoples. It comes down to the word leam, or two people. Is it for him, two people, a treasure, or is it for him to people treasure? The meaning is similar in either case, but I wanted you to be aware of the Hebrew because either way, they, as a people, are set apart to the Lord. Thus, the error of thinking by all can be corrected if they accept, one, the God of the Bible, two, that God's decrees are unconditional, and three, that being set apart as holy as a people does not mean that the holiness is in the people but as the people. Because the Lord has chosen Israel as a people for himself, they are to him, verse 6 continues, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The word is segula. It signifies possession or property coming from an unused root, meaning to shut up as in wealth. One would take something precious like treasure and shut it up and keep it close by. Thus, it is variously translated as a peculiar treasure, a possession, jewels, special possession, and so on. Moses says that they, as a people, are this treasure. 
And yet as a nation, in order to be so, they must be obedient to his commandments. Thus, it is both conditional and unconditional, depending on the context. And this is where the church continuously blows this. Replacement theologians have been doing it for 2,000 years. Peter, speaking to the Jews who have come to Christ, cites these words in his first epistle, saying this, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Paul uses the same word in Ephesians 1.14 concerning the Gentiles who have been brought into the commonwealth of Israel. We have become a possession of the Lord through obedience to, meaning calling on Christ. More directly, however, Paul uses the same phrase, laon periusion, in Titus 2.14 that is used in the Greek translation of this verse right here in Deuteronomy. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself for his own special people. The same word translated that way in the Greek translation of Deuteronomy, zealous for good works. Vincent's Word Studies notes of this, the phrase was originally applied to the people of Israel, but it is transferred there to believers in Messiah, Jews and Gentiles. He is correct in that. The people of the church have been redeemed in order that we can become a special people to God, just as Israel is. In this act, and in the use of the term by Paul, many scholars unfortunately then make the jump in logic that this means that the church has now replaced Israel, thus becoming spiritual Israel. This is a category mistake, and it is gigantic error in theology. Just because we in the church have become a special people to God, it doesn't mean that we have replaced God's chosen people, Israel. We have simply joined into the commonwealth of blessing of which they already participate in. Others will use Paul's words to justify that there are two Gospels, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. That's a heresy known as hyperdispensationalism. That is proven false by Paul's words in verse 211, where he says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. There is one Gospel for all. However, to understand how the church did not replace the people Israel, we can make a simple example. The church was once predominantly Jewish. Does everybody know that? It was once only Jews, okay? It later became predominantly Gentile. That's actually recorded in the book of Acts that that is where the direction is going. In this, we can think of two separate baskets of olives. Everybody, hold up your baskets of olives and pay attention. God chooses one basket and draws it out for himself. This is Israel. He takes the fruit out of it as needed for his oil. At some point, however, the olives in the basket, which are good, are so few in number that he then draws out from another basket, the Gentiles. That basket has an immense supply of good fruit, so much so that it becomes the predominant fruit used for the oil. The oil running into the bottles is mixed with an almost insignificant amount of Jewish oil. That's the way the church is right now, right? However, that is still coming from the basket of Israel. The two baskets remain separate and distinct. 
Now, over the many centuries, the basket of Gentile fruit is starting to wane. We've got crummy churches all over. They're not part of the good fruit. They're not being used. The number of good olives is rapidly diminishing. But the number of Israel fruit, guess what? It's on the increase. The categories have never changed, and one did not replace the other. It simply has become the predominant source of oil for a period of time. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, but one can see that each basket remained the same. And Paul never mixes those categories, ever. Not one time in his writings does he do it, okay? One did not replace the other. Israel, as a people, is set apart unto the Lord. But only those of Israel who do what the Lord expects are of use by the Lord. And it's the same in the church. If you're not doing what the Lord expects, if you're not a saved believer in one of these crummy churches that's not preaching the gospel, they are not being used and their oil is not in that container or whatever. It simply has become the predominant source of oil for a period of time. Someday, the set-apart people of Israel will, as a nation, come to Christ, a precept which is anticipated in the Mosaic Covenant through the New Covenant. And they, as a nation, will be holy to the Lord. Israel as a people was selected by the Lord as his own and for his own good purposes. They and no one else were offered the Mosaic Covenant and they accepted it. They are a physical group of people united to the Lord in this manner. They were selected by the Lord. The church as a people is received by the Lord as his own and for his own good purposes. All without any exceptions are offered the new covenant. Those in the church are those who have accepted its offer. They are a spiritual group of people united to the Lord in this manner. As for Israel, verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. The word translated as set his love is chashak. It comes from a root word meaning to cling to. In the construction of the tabernacle, it was translated as bands, which bound two things together. Here, it is as if the Lord bound himself to Israel through an act of love. However, he didn't do it based on their size as a nation. Many groups descended from Terah, who is Abraham's father, the people of Edom, Moab, Ammon, and Ishmael, for example. However, the line of promise from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob started very slowly. For example, Ishmael gave Abraham 12 grandsons. However, it wasn't until Jacob that there were 12 tribes, meaning Abraham's great-grandsons. And not only that, Isaac was 60 years old when he had Esau and Jacob. And Jacob was over 85 years old when he started having children. Despite the smaller numbers, though, God has chosen this line and had sovereignly watched over it, binding himself to it, nurturing it, and loving it. Verse 7 continues, For you are the least of all peoples. God upturns the thinking of man. We look to large numbers and see greatness. We look at people that are wealthy and we see greatness. We see all of these kind of things. That's not the way that God looks at them. We expect that God would do the same. But where is the glory for him in that? He called a small and insignificant group of people for himself. Then he brought them into a situation where they would greatly multiply. However, in their multiplication, they were in bondage. And yet the Lord brought them out, destroying a greater and mightier nation in the process. The glory belongs to the Lord. Such is true with every aspect of what the Lord does. He uses that which is considered less to glorify his greatness. The same thought transfers to those in the church. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. It must be understood what Paul's words are conveying. The calling of the Lord is what is responded to by the individual. It is generally those who are of low esteem, who will humble themselves and admit, I need a savior. The call is made, but it is a call that is generally responded to by the lowly. Israel's calling was active. The calling to the church is passive, but both are to what would otherwise seem unimpressive, lowly, and so on. For Israel, it was not because of their size, verse 8, but because the Lord loves you. Because for love, Jehovah for you. In chapter 4, the Lord says it was because of love for their fathers. Here's what it said. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. In chapter 9, Moses says it is not because of their righteousness, but because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord was giving them the land of Canaan. Further, he says that it is in order to fulfill his word to the fathers. He then ensures that they understand this by calling them stiff-necked. Understanding that the Lord's love for Israel is originally based on his love for the fathers, there's nothing intrinsically worthy of that love in them. Rather, because of his nature, which is love, it is then directed to those of the covenant promises. As Moses says, verse 8 continues, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord spoke on an oath, and therefore he must perform. His very nature demands that his word will be fulfilled. Therefore, his word must come to pass. Because of this, verse 8 finishes with, The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The idea of these words from both verses 7 and 8 is that the Lord bound himself to this people in order to love them and in order to keep his oath. Both have a divine motive behind them. It's not that he loved Israel for who they are, but because of who he is. We could say, I'm not loving you for who you are, but for who you could be in relation to me. When the Lord saves a person, it is because he is love. The saving is in anticipation of the relationship, not the other way around, because the relationship did not exist until the saving. This is how it is with Israel. Because of who he is, he brought Israel out from the house of bondage. Because of who he is, he sent his son to die for us. The love extends from God to us. Only when we rightly respond to that love does the relationship begin. What we see in this final verse is Israel's selection and calling being equated directly to the individual believer. We are in sin, we are in bondage, and we can do nothing to redeem ourselves. But more, we have no idea about the love of God. It's foreign to us. Israel was brought out, and that act was to alert them to the fact that God is covenant-keeping and that he is loving. They were to respond in kind because of that understanding. 
we are told the message of Jesus Christ, that he has potentially redeemed us from our bondage. When we understand that God did this as an act of love, we are to respond, accepting what he has done and thus making that redemption actual. It is the acceptance of the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ. This is what this passage tells us today. God is sovereign over the process, be it in exterminating the inhabitants of Canaan, using Israel's failure to do so in unique and glorious ways, such as the saving of Rahab the harlot, or be it in the offer of Jesus for the sins of the world. No person can question what God is doing. We can only accept that what he is doing is for the greatest good of all. If you don't believe that, then you have misunderstood the significance of the cross Contemplate what God has done and then accept it for what it is and then receive it by faith. The offer stands open to any and all who will reach out and receive it. I feel so bad for people that go to churches where they teach universal salvation or that God won't send anybody to hell. They have completely misunderstood even the basic words of Moses from the fifth book of the Bible. They have completely misunderstood. God is love, but certain things have to happen before that love can be displayed. It must be that way, or it's not the righteous God of the Bible. It's not the just God of the Bible. It's not the holy God of the Bible. God cannot turn off one of his attributes or override one of his attributes in order to exemplify another one. He can't say, I'm unrighteous in order to be more loving. That is impossible because he is righteous. He is love. How does he get around that for us? He sends his son to die for us. Thus, the righteousness is satisfied, the justice is satisfied, the love is given, the mercy is granted, the grace is provided. It can only happen that way. I feel sorry for people that are stuck in other religions that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I feel bad for them. But that's why we send out missionaries, hoping that they will get out there and do the job that they're being paid to do, is so that they can bring people from that darkness into light. Because without it, they're just like all of the people of human history going off to a place where they will be separated forever from the love of God, which is found in Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, you've got the wrong church because that is what the Bible teaches, and you don't even need the Bible to understand it. If you simply think of the nature of God, we talked about it on Thursday, it can be no other way. Jesus Christ came to redeem us, not the other way around. Please call on Jesus Christ. Admit that you're a sinner. Hand your sins to him, and he will take care of them for you. This is what God asks us to do. It's a big thing, though, saying that I can't save myself. Everybody wants to save themselves in this world. Everybody wants to say, I'm good enough. I'm better than that guy. There's no bell curve in God, and there is no righteousness before a holy God until you come to Jesus Christ. Please do it today. Our closing verse comes from 1 John chapter 4. Here it is right here. Love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Next week is Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 16. That it is wonderful is beyond controversy. It's entitled The Covenant. And the mercy. That'll be our 27th Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations for you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I got a question for you before I read this 
poem. Today, you can either fly around with me for an hour in this, or you can drive this Maserati home. Today, we spoke of Israel as a holy people to the Lord. What book is used by Paul, <coughs> excuse me, is used by Paul to teach us church age theology, the Lord saying to Israel, you are not my people. I'm not talking about Paul's citing it. I'm talking about which book is he citing from the Old Testament. You are not my people. That's New Testament. I'm looking for the Old Testament. Where does Paul cite that from? You are not my people. Lo ami, not my people. Anybody? Remember, somebody is told to marry a, a harlot, Gomer, and then name the child. You're not my people. Lo ami. And then, uh, come on. One kings. No. No. One more chance, and then I'm going to have to tie it up. Two kings. No. <laughs> that was good. Quite good guess, though. Nobody gets. I'm going to take this out and fly it all by myself. It's the book of Hosea. Yeah. If, who said that? Oh, I didn't hear you. We're going for a ride, or you can take this home. Okay, we're going for a flight after church is over. Good job. I did not hear that. I'm sorry. Hosea 1, 9, and 10, and Hosea 2, 23. Okay? And the other child is named Lo Ruhamah. No mercy. Okay? All right, here we go. Because the Lord loves you. When the Lord your God brings you into the land as he promised to do, which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites, and the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, a bunch of ites, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them, so you shall do. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, not even one nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so I tell you plainly. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and down their sacred pillars you shall break and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with the fire for goodness sake. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you with joy and mirth to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all peoples, such is the score. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath, please understand, which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage. Out of his grasp, you he stripped from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to hear your word put forth and to be analyzed. And I pray that nothing I said today would be not in accord with your word, that everything is proper and correct. And if it's not, I would pray that you would wipe it out of these people's memory so that they don't carry bad doctrine with them. 
But Lord, I would pray for better things, that what has been presented is correct and that you have not rejected your people Israel and that you've shown us with just a couple changes of words between two verses in two separate books of the Bible, showing us that they are a holy people, even if they're not a holy nation. And we can transfer that to ourselves as well. Thank you for the mercy you've bestowed upon us and help us to be a holy people to you by living in the state that we have been called to. May it be so to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.